dodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black bears To the playhouse of fortune To take the bright silver Only soldiers, slaves and the wretchedly poor had to rely on purchase, on theft, or on handouts. Urbanization was limited, and town markets only supplemented the diet of city dwellers, who still produced always part of their own sustenance. And you give me your best, Cows, which for generations grow in stables, can walk their hoofs off in a few miles. You're listening to episode 744 of Unwelcome Guests. The machine stops. I'm Robin Upton. If that seems like a simple title, well, the subtitle is Three Wise Men on the Implications of Human Stabulation. Now, I have to look that word up. It means putting in stables. Normally not applied to human beings, but our third speaker, Ivan Illich, deliberately does so. He's actually speaking, introducing his book, Medical Nemesis, 1974. You wouldn't know that from the talk, because he's taking a pan-institutional analysis, suggesting that the same problems which occur when individuals lose the capacity for caring for oneself and one another because of a larger healthcare system, which attempts to do the same thing on an institutional basis, he's suggesting those problems also apply to the food system and that all through history people have understood, well, I need food and therefore I'm going to work out how to get that myself, how to grow it, and he suggests that problems occur when people are put in sterile environments surrounded by concrete it's very convenient it is also highly unnatural now i thought these are important ideas that it has let's use it as introductory material then i thought well it's not actually that addressable so i thought more important for me to let you know where i'm going with the show and i thought we'll try something different our main piece the title piece is a 70 minute short story science fiction from 1909 and it happens to fall into three chapters so since I've got two pieces of material to juxtapose with it so let's try a sandwich model without further ado but with thanks to the good people from LibriVox.org who will introduce themselves recording by Jenna Lee The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster Chapter 1 The Airship Imagine, if you can, a small room, hexagonal in shape, like the cell of a bee. It is lighted neither by window nor by lamp, yet it is filled with a soft radiance. There are no apertures for ventilation, yet the air is fresh. There are no musical instruments, and yet, at the moment that my meditation opens, this room is throbbing with melodious sounds. An armchair is in the center, by its side a reading desk. That is all the furniture. And in the armchair there sits a swaddled lump of flesh, 
a woman about five feet high with a face as white as a fungus. It is to her that the little room belongs. An electric bell rang. The woman touched a switch and the music was silent. I suppose I must see who it is, she thought, and set her chair in motion. The chair, like the music, was worked by machinery and it rolled her to the other side of the room where the bell still rang importunately. Who is it? she called. Her voice was irritable, for she had been interrupted often since the music began. She knew several thousand people. In certain directions, human intercourse had advanced enormously. But when she listened into the receiver, her white face wrinkled into smiles, and she said, Very well, let us talk. I will isolate myself. I do not expect anything important will happen for the next five minutes, for I can give you fully five minutes, Kuno. Then I must deliver my lecture on music during the Australian period. She touched the isolation knob so that no one else could speak to her. Then she touched the lighting apparatus, and the little room was plunged into darkness. Be quick, she called, her irritation returning. Be quick, Kuno. Here I am in the dark, wasting my time. But it was fully fifteen seconds before the round plate that she held in her hands began to glow. A faint blue light shot across it, darkening to purple, and presently she could see the image of her son, who lived on the other side of the earth, and he could see her. Kuno, how slow you are. He smiled gravely. I really believe you enjoy dawdling. I have called you before, mother, but you were always busy or isolated. I have something particular to say. What is it, dearest boy? Be quick. Why could you not send it by pneumatic post? Because I prefer saying such a thing. I want... Well? I want you to come and see me. Vashti watched his face in the blue plate. "'But I can see you,' she exclaimed. "'What more do you want?' "'I want to see you not through the machine,' said Kuno. "'I want to speak to you not through the wearisome machine.' "'Oh, hush!' said his mother, vaguely shocked. "'You mustn't say anything against the machine.' "'Why not?' "'One mustn't.' "'You talk as if God had made the machine,' cried the other." I believe that you pray to it when you are unhappy. Men made it, do not forget that. Great men, but men. The machine is much, but it is not everything. I see something like you in this plate, but I do not see you. I hear something like you through this telephone, but I do not hear you. That is why I want you to come. Pay me a visit, so that we can meet face to face and talk about the hopes that are in my mind." She replied that she could scarcely spare the time for a visit. The airship barely takes two days to fly between me and you. I dislike airships. Why? I dislike seeing the horrible brown earth and the sea and the stars when it is dark. I get no ideas in an airship. I do not get them anywhere else. What kind of ideas can the air give you? He paused for an instant. Do you not know four big stars that form an oblong, and three stars close together in the middle of the oblong, and hanging from these stars three other stars? No, I do not. I dislike the stars. But did they give you an idea? How interesting. Tell me. I had an idea that they were like a man. I do not understand. 
The four big stars are the man's shoulders and his knees. The three stars in the middle are like the belts that men wore once, and the three stars hanging are like a sword. A sword? Men carried swords about with them, to kill animals and other men. It does not strike me as a very good idea, but it is certainly original. When did it come to you first? In the airship. He broke off, and she fancied that he looked sad. She could not be sure, for the machine did not transmit nuances of expression. It only gave a general idea of people, an idea that was good enough for all practical purposes, Vashti thought. The imponderable bloom, declared by a discredited philosophy to the actual essence of intercourse, was rightly ignored by the machine, just as the imponderable bloom of the grape was ignored by the manufacturers of artificial fruit. Something good enough had long since been accepted by our race. The truth is, he continued, that I want to see these stars again. They are curious stars. I want to see them not from the airship, but from the surface of the earth, as our ancestors did thousands of years ago. I want to visit the surface of the earth. She was shocked again. Mother, you must come, if only to explain to me what is the harm of visiting the surface of the earth. No harm, she replied, controlling herself, but no advantage. The surface of the earth is only dust and mud, no advantage. The surface of the earth is only dust and mud, no life remains on it, and you would need a respirator, or the cold of the outer air would kill you. One dies immediately in the outer air. I know. Of course I shall take all precautions. And besides... Well? She considered and chose her words with care. Her son had a queer temper, and she wished to dissuade him from the expedition. It is contrary to the spirit of the age, she asserted. Do you mean by that contrary to the machine? In a sense, but... His image in the blue plate faded. Kuno! He had isolated himself. For a moment Vashti felt lonely. Then she generated the light, and the sight of her room, flooded with radiance and studded with electric buttons, revived her. There were buttons and switches everywhere, buttons to call for food, for music, for clothing. There was the hot bath button, by pressure of which a basin of imitation marble rose out of the floor, filled to the brim with a warm, deodorized liquid. There was the cold bath button. There was the button that produced literature— and there were, of course, the buttons by which she communicated with her friends. The room, though it contained nothing, was in touch with all that she cared for in the world. Vashti's next move was to turn off the isolation switch, and all the accumulations of the last three minutes burst upon her. The room was filled with the noise of bells and speaking tubes. What was the new food like? Could she recommend it? Has she had any ideas lately? Might one tell her one's own ideas? Would she make an engagement to visit the public nurseries at an early date, say this day and month? To most of these questions she replied with irritation, a growing quality in that accelerated age. She said that the new food was horrible, that she could not visit the public nurseries through press of engagements, that she had no ideas of her own but had just been told one, that four stars and three in the middle were like a man. She doubted there was much in it. Then she switched off her correspondence, for it was time to deliver her lecture on Australian music. The clumsy system of public gatherings had been long since abandoned. Neither Vashti nor her audience stirred from their rooms. Seated in her armchair, she spoke, 
while they in their armchairs heard her fairly well and saw her fairly well. She opened with a humorous account of music in the pre-Mongolian epoch, and went on to describe the great outburst of song that followed the Chinese conquest. Remote and primeval as were the methods of Isenso and the Brisbane School, she yet felt, she said, that study of them might repay the musicians of today. They had freshness, they had, above all, ideas. Her lecture, which lasted ten minutes, was well received, and at its conclusion she and many of her audience listened to a lecture on the sea. There were ideas to be got from the sea. The speaker had donned a respirator and visited it lately. Then she fed, talked to many friends, had a bath, talked again, and summoned her bed. The bed was not to her liking. It was too large, and she had a feeling for a small bed. Complaint was useless, for beds were of the same dimension all over the world, and to have had an alternative size would have involved vast alterations in the machine. Vashti isolated herself. It was necessary, for neither day nor night existed under the ground, and reviewed all that had happened since she had summoned the bed last. Ideas? Scarcely any. Events? Was Kuno's invitation an event? By her side, on the little reading desk, was a survival from the ages of litter, one book. This was the book of the machine. In it were instructions against every possible contingency. If she was hot or cold or dyspeptic or at a loss for a word, she went to the book and it told her which button to press. The Central Committee published it. In accordance with the growing habit, it was richly bound. Sitting up in the bed, she took it reverently in her hands. She glanced round the glowing room as if someone might be watching her. Then, half ashamed, half joyful, she murmured, "'Oh, machine! Oh, machine!' and raised the volume to her lips. Thrice she kissed it, thrice inclined her head, thrice she felt the delirium of acquiescence. Her ritual performed, she turned to page 1367, which gave the times of the departure of the airships from the island in the southern hemisphere, under whose soil she lived to the island in the northern hemisphere, whereunder lived her son. She thought, I have not the time. She made the room dark and slept. She woke and made the room light. She ate and exchanged ideas with her friends, and listened to music and attended lectures. She made the room dark and slept. Above her, beneath her, and around her, the machine hummed eternally. She did not notice the noise, for she had been born with it in her ears. The earth, carrying her, hummed as it sped through silence, turning her now to the invisible sun, now to the invisible stars. She awoke and made the room light. Kuno, I will not talk to you, he answered, until you come. Have you been on the surface of the earth since we spoke last? His image faded. Again she consulted the book. She became very nervous and lay back in her chair palpitating. Think of her as without teeth or hair. Presently she directed the chair to the wall and pressed an unfamiliar button. The wall swung apart slowly. Through the opening she saw a tunnel that curved slightly, so that its goal was not visible. Should she go to see her son, here was the beginning of the journey. Of course she knew all about the communication system. There was nothing mysterious in it. She would summon a car and it would fly with her down the tunnel until it reached the lift that communicated with the airship station. The system had been in use for many, many years, long before the universal establishment of the machine. And, of course, she had studied the civilization that had immediately preceded her own. 
the civilization that had mistaken the functions of the system and had used it for bringing people to things instead of for bringing things to people those funny old days when men went for change of air instead of changing the air in their rooms and yet she was frightened of the tunnel she had not seen it since her last child was born it curved but not quite as she remembered it was brilliant but not quite as brilliant as a lecturer had suggested vashti was seized with the terrors of direct experience she shrank back into the room and the wall closed up again kuno she said i cannot come to see you i am not well immediately an enormous apparatus fell on to her out of the ceiling a thermometer was automatically laid upon her heart she lay powerless cool pads soothed her forehead kuno had telegraphed to her doctor so the human passions still blundered up and down in the machine vashti drank the medicine that the doctor projected into her mouth and the machinery retired into the ceiling the voice of kuno was heard asking how she felt better then with irritation but why do you not come to me instead because i cannot leave this place why because any moment something tremendous may happen have you been on the surface of the earth yet not yet then what is it i will not tell you through the machine she resumed her life but she thought of kuno as a baby his birth his removal to the public nurseries her own visit to him there his visits to her visits which stopped when the machine had assigned him a room on the other side of the earth parents comma duties of said the book of the machine cease at the moment of birth paragraph four two two three two seven four eight three true but there was something special about kuno indeed there had been something special about all her children and after all she must brave the journey if he desired it and something tremendous might happen what did that mean the nonsense of a youthful man no doubt but she must go again she pressed the unfamiliar button again the wall swung back and she saw the tunnel that curves out of sight clasping the book she rose tottered onto the platform and summoned the car her room closed behind her the journey to the northern hemisphere had begun of course it was perfectly easy the car approached and in it she found armchairs exactly like her own when she signaled it stopped and she tottered into the lift one other passenger was in the lift the first fellow creature she had seen face to face for months few traveled in these days for thanks to the advance of science the earth was exactly alike all over rapid intercourse from which the previous civilization had hoped so much had ended by defeating itself what was the good of going to peking when it was just like shrewsbury why return to shrewsbury when it would all be like peking men seldom moved their bodies all unrest was concentrated in the soul the airship service was a relic from the former age it was kept up because it was easier to keep it up than to stop it or to diminish it but it now far exceeded the wants of the population vessel after vessel would rise from the vomitories of rye or of christchurch i use the antique names would sail into the crowded sky and would draw up at the wharves of the south empty so nicely adjusted was the system so independent of meteorology that the sky whether calm or cloudy resembled a vast kaleidoscope whereon the same patterns periodically recurred the ship on which vashti sailed started now at sunset now at dawn but always as it passed above reyaz 
it would neighbor the ship that served between Helsingfors and the Brazils, and, every third time it surmounted the Alps, the fleet of Palermo would cross its track behind. Night and day, wind and storm, tide and earthquake, impeded man no longer. He had harnessed Leviathan. All the old literature, with its praise of nature, and its fear of nature, rang false as the prattle of a child. Yet, as Vashti saw the vast flank of the ship, stained with exposure to the outer air, her horror of direct experience returned. It was not quite like the airship in the cinema to vote. For one thing it smelt. Not strongly or unpleasantly, but it did smell, and with her eyes shut she should have known that a new thing was close to her. Then she had to walk to it from the lift, had to submit to glances from the other passengers. The man in front dropped his book. No great matter, but it disquieted them all. In the rooms, if the book was dropped, the floor raised it mechanically. But the gangway to the airship was not so prepared, and the sacred volume lay motionless. They stopped. The thing was unforeseen, and the man, instead of picking up his property, felt the muscles of his arm to see how they had failed him. Then someone actually said with direct utterance, "'We shall be late,' and they trooped on board, Vashti treading on the pages as she did so. Inside her anxiety increased. The arrangements were old-fashioned and rough. There was even a female attendant, to whom she would have to announce her wants during the voyage. Of course a revolving platform ran the length of the boat, but she was expected to walk from it to her cabin. Some cabins were better than others, and she did not get the best. She thought the attendant had been unfair, and spasms of rage shook her. The glass valves had closed. She could not go back. She saw, at the end of the vestibule, the lift in which she had ascended going quietly up and down, empty. Beneath those corridors of shining tiles were rooms, tier below tier, reaching far into the earth, and in each room there sat a human being, eating or sleeping or producing ideas, and buried deep in the hive was her own room. Vashti was afraid. "'Oh, machine!' she murmured and caressed her book, and was comforted. Then the sides of the vestibule seemed to melt together as to the passages that we see in dreams. The lift vanished, the book that had been dropped slid to the left and vanished. Polished tiles rushed by like a stream of water. There was a slight jar, and the airship, issuing from its tunnel, soared above the waters of a tropical ocean. It was night. For a moment she saw the coast of Sumatra edged by the phosphorescence of waves, and crowned by lighthouses, still sending forth their disregarded beams. These also vanished, and only the stars distracted her. They were not motionless, but swayed to and fro above her head, thronging out of one skylight into another, as if the universe and not the airship was careening. And, as often happens on clear nights, they seemed now to be in perspective, now on a plane, now piled tier beyond tier into the infinite heavens, now concealing infinity, a roof limiting forever the visions of men. In either case they seemed intolerable. "'Are we to travel in the dark?' called the passengers angrily, and the attendant, who had been careless, generated the light and pulled down the blinds of pliable metal. When the airships had been built, the desire to look direct at things still lingered in the world. Hence the extraordinary number of skylights and windows— and the proportionate discomfort to those who were civilized and refined. Even in Vashti's cabin one star peeped through a flaw in the blind, and after a few hours' uneasy slumber 
she was disturbed by an unfamiliar glow which was the dawn. Quick as the ship had sped westwards, the earth had rolled eastwards quicker still, and had dragged back Vashti and her companions towards the sun. Science could prolong the night, but only for a little, and those high hopes of neutralizing the earth's diurnal revolution had passed, together with hopes that were possibly higher. To keep pace with the sun, or even to outstrip it, had been the aim of the civilization preceding this. Racing aeroplanes had been built for the purpose, capable of enormous speed, and steered by the greatest intellects of the epoch. Round the globe they went, round and round, westward, westward, round and round, amidst humanity's applause. In vain. The globe went eastward quicker still, horrible accidents occurred, and the committee of the machine, at the time rising into prominence, declared the pursuit illegal, unmechanical, and punishable by homelessness. Of homelessness, more will be said later. Doubtless the committee was right, yet the attempt to defeat the sun aroused the last common interest that our race experienced about the heavenly bodies, or indeed about anything. It was the last time that men were compacted by thinking of a power outside the world. The sun had conquered, yet it was the end of his spiritual dominion. Dawn, midday, twilight, the zodiacal path, touched neither men's lives nor their hearts, and science retreated into the ground, to concentrate herself upon problems that she was certain of solving. So when Vashti found her cabin invaded by a rosy finger of light, she was annoyed, and tried to adjust the blind. But the blind flew up altogether, and she saw through the skylight small pink clouds, swaying against a background of blue, and as the sun crept higher its radiance entered direct, brimming down the wall like a golden sea. It rose and fell with the airship's motion, just as waves rise and fall, but it advanced steadily as a tide advances. Unless she was careful, it would strike her face. A spasm of horror shook her, and she rang for the attendant. The attendant, too, was horrified, but she could do nothing. It was not her place to mend the blind." She could only suggest that the lady should change her cabin, which she accordingly prepared to do. People were almost exactly alike all over the world, but the attendant of the airship, perhaps owing to her exceptional duties, had grown a little out of the common. She had often to address passengers with direct speech, and this had given her a certain roughness and originality of manner. When Vashti swerved away from the sunbeams with a cry, she behaved barbarically. She put out her hand to steady her. "'How dare you!' exclaimed the passenger. "'You forget yourself!' The woman was confused and apologized for not having let her fall. People never touched one another. The custom had become obsolete owing to the machine. "'Where are we now?' asked Vashti haughtily. "'We are over Asia,' said the attendant, anxious to be polite. "'Asia?' "'You must excuse my common way of speaking. "'I have got into the habit of calling places over which I pass by their unmechanical names. "'Oh, I remember Asia. The Mongols come from it. "'Beneath us, in the open air, stood a city that was once called Simla. "'Have you ever heard of the Mongols and of the Brisbane School?' "'No. Brisbane also stood in the open air. "'Those mountains to the right, let me show you them.' "'She pushed back a metal blind.' The main chain of the Himalayas was revealed. They were once called the roof of the world, those mountains. You must remember that, before the dawn of civilization, they seemed to be an impenetrable wall that touched the stars. 
it was supposed that no one but the gods could exist above their summits. How we have advanced thanks to the machine. How we have advanced thanks to the machine, said Vashti. How we have advanced thanks to the machine, echoed the passenger, who had dropped his book the night before, and who was standing in the passage. And that white stuff in the cracks? What is it? I have forgotten its name. Cover the windows, please. The mountains give me no ideas. The northern aspect of the Himalayas was in deep shadow. On the Indian slope the sun had just prevailed. The forests had been destroyed during the literature epoch for the purpose of making newspaper pulp, but the snows were awakening to their morning glory, and clouds still hung on the breasts of Kinchinjunga. In the plain were seen the ruins of cities, with diminished rivers creeping by their walls, and by the sides of these were sometimes the signs of vomitories, marking the cities of today. Over the whole prospect airships rushed, crossing the intercrossing with incredible aplomb, and rising nonchalantly when they desired to escape the perturbations of the lower atmosphere and to traverse the roof of the world. We have indeed advanced, thanks to the machine, repeated the attendant, and hid the Himalayas behind a metal blind. The day dragged wearily forward. The passengers sat each in his cabin, avoiding one another with an almost physical repulsion, and longing to be once more under the surface of the earth. There were eight or ten of them, mostly young males, sent out from the public nurseries to inhabit the rooms of those who had died in various parts of the earth. The man who had dropped his book was on the homeward journey. He had been sent to Sumatra for the purpose of propagating the race. Vashti alone was traveling by her own private will. At midday she took a second glance at the earth. The airship was crossing another range of mountains, but she could see little owing to clouds. Masses of black rock hovered below her, and merged indistinctly into gray. Their shapes were fantastic. One of them resembled a prostrate man. "'No ideas here,' murmured Vashti, and hid the Caucasus behind a metal blind. In the evening she looked again. They were crossing a golden sea, in which lay many small islands and one peninsula. She repeated, "'No ideas here,' and hid Greece behind a metal blind. End of chapter 1 now, let's continue with that Ivan Illich recording. This turned up on YouTube, and I think it is from December 1974. I can't say a lot more about it, other than well, it's actually a video. You don't really gain a lot from seeing a blurred image of Illich. But for the sake of protocol, I shall link to the original source material from this show's webpage, unwelcomeguest.net slash 744. With autonomy and consciousness in the people who are engaged in constantly coping with their environment, which we call it a living, and therefore medicine must smother health. The same can be said in every domain where the autonomous production of use value and the heteronomous production of ex exchange value are in conflict, as they are now more and more in more and more sectors. This is my hypothesis about the so-called crisis in which we are. This synergy of these two modes of production, autonomous I do, and heteronomous I things, staple things made for me, remains positive only as long as technological inputs increase the effectiveness on both sides of the balance, on both sides of the scale. 
Unfortunately, this is not what is happening. Because of an ideological prejudice in favor of centralized, as you just said, professional production, technological advance is almost inevitably put at the disposal of an increased effectiveness on the heteronomous side, on the industrial side, in the, in the industrial mode of production. As soon as technological progress benefits the mass production of staples for people and does so beyond a certain proportion, people's ability to fend for themselves cannot but decline because society is rearranged for maximum effectiveness in industrial production. Society is drafted as an entity into the service of industry. Law then becomes a tool for the social engineering of producers and consumers. And politics becomes a squabble about who gets more, even though now all can do less on their own. In other words, the synergy of autonomous activity and heteronomous delivery, or if you want to put it in other words, of personal doing and institutional making, the synergy between the two major modes of production, in the case of such an unbalance, gives negative returns. And this synergy, this negative result of synergy between industrial and autonomous production, results in a misery of a new kind. This is what is new about the moment which we are living. Educated stupidity, iatrogenic ill health, high-speed wastage of time, luxury imprisonment, imprisonment, institutionally liberated sex, informational overload. These are all products of negative institutional synergy. I believe, and this is where I risk to make, to state a hypothesis, that contemporary famine belongs to the same ilk of misery. The hunger which creates the world, which threatens the world, is a new kind of phenomenon. Of course, hunger is one of the oldest companions of man. But I do believe that we cannot really manage what we are facing during the next 10 or 15 years unless we see in which sense it is new. We remain powerless to counter it unless we understand that the famine which comes is unlike any famine of old. This point, I know, is difficult to make and difficult to swallow. And I beg, though, if there are again some of our colleagues here who were here last time, uh, who on this point see different from me, forgive me for rubbing it in again. It's difficult to make and difficult to swallow because people who are done in by hunger tend all to look alike and all evoke in us the urge to provide them with a bowl of soup. We have simply not been trained to distinguish the personal neighbor, this guy who is hungry, from the ad in the paper representing the victim of an impersonal catastrophe somewhere else. 
We are easily talked into... Look here, this is a kid whom you should help. Look how he looks. Industrial and missionary vanity and presumption have grown hand in hand over the last 150 years. Imperialism and missionarism. The conviction that the rich must be able to help the poor. The time now has come to understand that the family next door can eat well for Christmas if I hand them 10 pounds, perhaps. While famine in bingo requires that we all, I first always, give up not only cars, perhaps flying in jet planes too, first of all. Now, professional do-gooders systematically confuse this issue. We fill the papers with pictures of bloated bellies and matchstick limbs. Impiously appeal to you to close your eyes to the structural issue which is facing us by giving a pound for bureaucratic administration of relief which will be very effective and decent indeed. The issue I want to bring to your attention cannot be grasped by you unless you renounce we all renounce in deep anguish to be a to be conviction that we must have a, somehow the power to help, and then understand that there is nothing we can do for people who, this year, next year, and the year after, will die. You understand why I'm worried about this? And said, I would like to discuss this, but in a milieu in which we are among ourselves, because I'm raising something which is just very difficult to put into words. What I want to discuss is the epidemic starvation which now decimates the marginal majorities of an industrialized mankind, which has been inescapably stabulated in a landscape of sterile concrete, and which is increasingly fed from mechanized farms. I want to explore if there are limits to men's capacity for stabulation. I remember 31 years ago, 32 years ago, my, my war experiences were saving Tuscany cows. My hero is Blue War. And to find out where the Germans would requisition cows and then somehow get them out of the stable and into the mafia. Which wasn't an easy job to do, because these were stabulated cows. And cows, which for generations grow in stables, can't walk their hoofs off in a few miles. When I therefore speak about, stab about the ability of men to resist stabulation, it is this kind of uh, experience which I want to talk about. Obviously, by what I've said, if I said it properly, I've not only touched upon something which is ops scenum, which really doesn't fit on the table uh, of a decent discussion, and on the other hand, I've said something which very easily sounds as, uh, as a call back to nature. Let's, what was the man who came today to, to interview me, and I wanted to he wanted to discuss medical names. He said, but you know, I didn't have really time to read it, but I have to write about it, so let me read what's on the back of it. He hadn't done even that. I mean, he said, oh, yeah, what kind of health foods do you eat? <laughs> and I told him, I don't. He said, well, uh, you jog, no? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to. 
when I speak about what I want to do is to raise the hypothesis that a law which seems to apply in five or six other areas where I've carefully thought it through, namely that there are two modes of production, and when one prevails, the heteronomous mode prevails, total effectiveness becomes negative. If that is applicable in the field of food production. Now, as soon as I say this, people say, well, uh, hey, you're speaking about something which is totally impossible. We can't go back and raise our own food. After all, city people never did. Now, this is not true. We tend to forget that until quite recently, very few people lived on packaged and marketed style-fed fodder. I still am struggling for right words to speak about this. Not only the peasant was engaged in the production of food, the typical 18th century townsman contributed sizably to his own subsistence or sustenance. On his garbage and the crumbs from his table, he raised chicken and rabbits in Europe and carps in the East. Pigs and goats contributed warmth to his home. Backyards were common. The fruit trees and vegetable gardens Many burghers had at least a family, if not property, just beyond the city gates. And I remember living in a college in the very center of Ronnik, behind Montecitorio, where the rules which were read to us every year at the beginning of the year so that the newcomers would know about them, forbade during the half-hour interruption to walk out into the vineyards. We sometimes forget about the size of traditional cities, even Rome. Excepting a few ports, I didn't dare to say this until very recently, but I, I, I think I'm not wrong, until very recently, 99% of the grain, oil, wine, and fruit came from within the horizon one could survey from the town's people, not to speak about the wood and charcoal needed for its cooking. I'm speaking of city dwellers. Besides cattle and salt, which sometimes came from afar, but was precious and rare, and also, of course, pepper and drugs, which were light and very precious, food did not travel from region to region. But more significant for our purpose is the fact that only a very limited part of the local food passed over the market. I accept here a few port cities. Only soldiers, slaves, and the wretchedly poor had to rely on purchase, on theft, or on handouts. Urbanization was limited, and town markets only supplemented the diet of city dwellers, who still <coughs> produced always part of their own sustenance. The literature on this subject is rather new for me. It, I, I do hope that in your milieu, I'll get more of it. When famine struck, food, of course, vanished from the market. Its price shot up three to twelve-fold. Such an increase was steep enough to starve rich and poor alike. There just was no food. Food was gone. Stocks might save the king's men in a fortified stronghold, but for most people, famine was an inescapable fate moderated only by what they could produce in a domestic way, in the domestic mode of production. How well is silence known here now? 
Marshall Salins, Stone Age Economics. Ah, one moment. Who of you has read that? You, you, please put it out. And this is a discovery for me. It's already two years on the market. I discovered it last year. Salins, S-A-H-L-I-N-S. If there is a Stone Age Economics. For me, it's one of the most enlightening books I've seen. A survey of the literature on Paleolithic people then and now. That is from archaeology and uh, uh, ethnology and an, an attempt to study their production in a strict, from a strictly economist's point of view, coming to surprising results. I'm not saying that we should go back to the Stone Age with Paul Goodman. I'm saying I'm a conservative Neolithic, but not a Paleolithic. <laughs> Food traditionally was immobile, except by waterway. When famine became severe, people moved in search of food. In northeastern Brazil, people still land in the slums of the seashore if they don't die on the way. Then draw strikes. Periodic starvation cruelly kept each region's population within each region's nurturing potential. The obvious necessity to live of the soil, and of course of the sun, available in a certain <coughs> circle, which was determined essentially by the donkey's autonomy, became a material parameter for the development of most peasant cultures. The rules governing land reform, marriage, child rearing, and dying can be interpreted in each culture as devices to ensure survival of a well-knit group hitched in and kept down by famine. The relationship of man to hunger changed radically only during the railroad age. Food became mobile. A world marketing foodstuff became possible. The new possibility of long-distance feeding not only called forth a new capital-intensive mechanized kind of farming, but principally, and this is the issue I want to take up, a new fantasy about human <coughs> interdependence, that which I called the missionary imperialist conviction about the rich man's power to help. A pest or a famine in Bengal was for two reasons a different experience in the time of Nelson and in the time of Disraeli. Before the telegraph could report on it, the apocalyptic rider of death might have passed before his appearance had been really noticed in London. And anyway, famine relief out of London could never be effective. Last year's famine in the Sahel was quite different. Londoners knew about its coming. Two years before, one Tuareg really could speak about it, at least in the language of London. And they knew all the time more about it in more detail than anybody in High Volta or Niger. We know that the pet food which is used in England, just that much, if it were transported at 3% of the vacation air travel done in 1973, could have provided the emergency staples needed. No question about that. At first sight, this would seem that famine could be conjured 
by inter-regional assistance or by outright gift. In which combines, agricultural combines, and translator babies are standard. In fact, this is wistful thinking. It is wistful thinking developed to protect the rich man's confidence in his industrial delusion. There are limits within which Bengalis can survive on grains from the Punjab, not to speak from grains from Kansas. The recent FAO meeting even has finally given official recognition to this fact. That disaster can be alleviated by shipment from stocks, but only to re relieve occasional failures if the region in itself is self-supporting. I see that I have talked longer than I wanted to. So let me sum up the end somewhat shorter than I had planned, because we want to come into conversation. I do believe that if we apply the hypothesis of the two modes of production and of negative synergy which sets in when one mode outgrows the balance to the agricultural production of food, we would come to the, we would need to find some parameters according to which we can define when agricultural production, inevitably mechanized production, must become counterproductive. I have played around and would like during the seminar in Cuernavaca this year to discuss two hypotheses. One would be to figure out what percentage of the total food value needed in a large... Now, I'm afraid it ends there rather abruptly. I have this to say on the matter of growing food and growing food in cities. It's not easy to grow a large proportion of your food in a city. I don't think it's impossible. Um, depending upon land use, land ownership, you may find it's actually easier than you think if you really set your mind to it. And even if, like myself, you've only succeeded in growing a small proportion of your food, a few percent, even that much, I have found very, very helpful to ground me, to contribute to my well-being in other ways than just nutrition and calorific. So I highly recommend the practice of growing food, even if it seems impractical, unfeasible, or difficult. Now, as far as Bangladesh goes, I must give special credit to the Bangladeshis here because this is a country in which the majority of people still grow their own food. And that allows them to be very independent thinking the village people a lot of them don't have electricity or gas or anything that the government can turn off usually they've got mobile phones now that's come in since i've been living here i remember when a friend of mine came to visit and we hadn't had electricity in the village for a month due to a hurricane and he was quite impressed by the Bangladeshi's villagers' relaxed attitude. Well, we'll see whether they bring the electricity back next month. It just wasn't uh, a major factor. He could really understand that the Bangladeshis had something 
which the citizens of the so-called developed countries had lost a long time ago. The process of stabulation, as Illich describes it, in Britain, of course, has taken centuries. So it's a much longer time ago. My direct ancestors were forced off the land and put into a position of de facto dependency upon the system. I've got a lot more things to say about money, about when you're growing for yourself and your friends, then that is effectively a gift economy situation. When unknown institutions and companies are producing food, that is a market economy. But I'm going to save those thoughts for another time. Let's continue with The Machine Stops. Recording by Aaron Tavano. Chapter 2. The Mending Apparatus. By a vestibule, by a lift, by a tubular railway, by a platform, by a sliding door, by reversing all the steps of her departure did Vashti arrive at her son's room, which exactly resembled her own. She might well declare that the visit was superfluous. The buttons, the knobs, the reading desk with the book, the temperature, the atmosphere, the illumination, all were exactly the same. And if Kuno himself, flush of her flush, stood close beside her at last, what profit was there in that? She was too well-bred to shake him by the hand. Averting her eyes, she spoke as follows. Here I am. I have had the most terrible journey and greatly retarded the development of my soul. It is not worth it, Kuno, it is not worth it. My time is too precious. The sunlight almost touched me, and I have met with the rudest people. I can only stop a few minutes. Say what you want to say, and then I must return. I have been threatened with homelessness, said Kuno. She looked at him now. I have been threatened with homelessness, and I could not tell you such a thing through the machine. Homelessness means death. The victim is exposed to the air, which kills him. I have been outside since I spoke to you last. The tremendous thing has happened, and they have discovered me. But why shouldn't you go outside, she exclaimed. It is perfectly legal, perfectly mechanical, to visit the surface of the earth. I have lately been to a lecture on the sea. There is no objection in that. One simply summons a respirator and gets an aggression permit. It is not the kind of thing that spiritually-minded people do, and I begged you not to do it, but there is no legal objection to it. I did not get an aggression permit. Then how did you get out? I found out a way of my own. The phrase conveyed no meaning to her, and he had to repeat it. A way of your own? she whispered. But that would be wrong. Why? The question shocked her beyond measure. You are beginning to worship the machine, he said coldly. You think it irreligious of me to have found out a way of my own. It was just what the committee thought when they threatened me with homelessness. At this she grew angry. I worship nothing, she cried. I am most advanced. I don't think you irreligious, for there is no such thing as religion left. All the fear and the superstition that existed once have been destroyed by the machine. I only meant that to find out a way of your own was... Besides, there is no new way out. So it is always supposed. Except through the vomitories, for which one must have an aggression permit, it is impossible to get out. The book says so. Well, the book's wrong for I have been out on my feet. 
for Kuno was possessed of a certain physical strength. By these days it was a demerit to be muscular. Each infant was examined at birth, and all who promised undue strength were destroyed. Humanitarians may protest, but it would have been no true kindness to let an athlete live. He would never have been happy in that state of life to which the machine had called him. He would have yearned for trees to climb, rivers to bathe in, meadows and hills against which he might measure his body. Men must be adapted to his surroundings, must he not? In the dawn of our world our weekly must be exposed on Mount Tagetus. In its twilight our strong will suffer euthanasia, that the machine may progress, that the machine may progress, that the machine may progress eternally. You know we have lost the sense of space. We say space is annihilated, but we have annihilated not space, but the sense thereof. We have lost a part of ourselves. I determined to recover it, and I began by walking up and down the platform of the railway outside my room, up and down, until I was tired, and so did recapture the meaning of near and far. Near is a place to which I can get quickly on my feet, not a place to which the train or the airship will take me quickly. Far is a place to which I cannot get quickly on my feet. The vomitory is far, though I could be there in thirty-eight seconds by summoning the train. Man is the measure. That was my first lesson. Man's feet are the measure for distance. His hands are the measure for ownership. His body is the measure for all that is lovable and desirable and strong. Then I went further, and it was then that I called to you for the first time, and you would not come. This city, as you know, is built deep beneath the surface of the earth, with only the vomitories protruding. Having paced the platform outside my own room, I took the lift to the next platform and paced that also, and so with each in turn, until I came to the topmost, above which begins the earth. All the platforms were exactly alike, and all that I gained by visiting them was to develop my sense of space and my muscles. I think I should have been content with this. It is not a little thing. But as I walked and brooded, it occurred to me that our cities had been built in the days when men still breathed the outer air, and that there had been ventilation shafts for the workmen. I could think of nothing but these ventilation shafts. Had they been destroyed by all the food tubes and medicine tubes and music tubes that the machine has evolved lately? Or did traces of them remain? One thing was certain. If I came upon them anywhere, it would be in the railway tunnels of the topmost story. Everywhere else, all space was accounted for. I am telling my story quickly, but don't think that I was not a coward or that your answers never depressed me. It is not the proper thing. It is not mechanical. It is not decent to walk along a railway tunnel. I did not fear that I might tread upon a live rail and be killed. I feared something far more intangible, doing what was not contemplated by the machine. Then I said to myself, Man is the measure. And I went, and after many visits I found an opening. The tunnels, of course, were lighted. Everything is light, artificial light. Darkness is the exception. So when I saw a black gap in the tiles, I knew it was an exception and rejoiced. I put in my arm, I could put in no more at first, and waved it round and round in ecstasy. I loosened another tile and put in my head.